Today we're discussing the colonial roots of Zionism and the birth of the Israeli state in 1948. We'll talk about the role that Israel plays in the pursuit of policies that accord with the interests of U.S. and Western imperialism. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you, if you're not yet, to become a patron today. Today we're talking with Richard Becker. Richard Becker is the author of a new book. Well, it's an old book with a new edition Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Richard, welcome to the Socialist Program. Thanks very much for having me on. Richard, the struggle in the last months, ever since the October 7th raid by Hamas into that part of historic Palestine that's across the wall that's been erected by occupation forces to keep Palestinians inside of Gaza, ever since that time, there has been this dramatic change in world public opinion because the world is watching, perhaps for the first time, a genocide being carried out in real time. Perhaps it's not on all of the mainstream television networks in the United States, but people have access to social media, foreign media. They are watching a genocide being played out in real time. And I think for a lot of people, especially people in the United States, people who perhaps voted for Joe Biden in 2020, but who are so mortified by the death and destruction by the Israeli military against the people of Gaza, and recognizing that Biden, the person they voted for, seems to be joined at the hip with Benjamin Netanyahu, the right-wing prime minister of Israel, and the U.S. continues to fund and finance and arm the genocide. So a lot of people are thinking, I didn't vote for that when I voted for Joe Biden. And a lot of people don't know why the United States government, whether it's Biden or Donald Trump, and I think if Trump was the president now, he'd be doing the same thing as Biden. They don't really understand why the U.S. is so connected, so fully embracing everything that the Israelis do, including the commission of war crimes and crimes against humanity. I wanted to talk about your new book. It's a book that was published earlier, but it's a new edition that came out after October 7th, so it has new information taking into account what happened on October 7th and what's happened since then, because your book presents a very readable, accessible, introductory history to the issue of Palestine and Israel, and the title is Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. And I think that's very important because I think your book actually explains why Biden or Trump, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, is all down with the Israeli genocide, even if it means, in the case of Biden, not winning re-election in 2024. 
You say in your book that Israel, or the Zionist Project, which became Israel in 1948, was a colonial enterprise from the beginning, but one with unique characteristics and also contradictions. Let's get started there. Can you explain that? Yeah, and really the Zionist Project, the modern Zionist Project, and we're talking about political Zionism, not religious Zionism, got started in the late 1800s, very late 1800s. It had its first Congress, World Zionist Congress, in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. And from the very beginning, this was a colonial project. On the one hand, and it was a very contradictory project, uh, I have to say as well. On the one hand, it was a reaction to anti-Semitism in Europe, European anti-Semitism, particularly anti-Semitism inside of the Russian Empire, which encompassed, you know, Poland today and, and many other independent countries, and where there was repeatedly these violent attacks that would take place against the Jewish people. And it was a technique that the czarist regime, the repressive police state regime, used to try to direct the antipathy and the anger of the masses, particularly the peasants, away from themselves and towards someone else. And a lot of times Jews became the target of this. So it was that, it was a very small movement at the beginning. It was a minority movement. Most politically active Jewish people in Europe were socialists or communists. Uh, later it would be communist. But they were progressive people who wanted to win equality. They were fighting for equality, not for separation. And they regarded Zionism as a dangerous ideology. But nevertheless, it was one reaction to anti-Semitism. At the same time, it was a European colonial movement, and it was from the beginning. And the leaders of it said so themselves. Theodore Herzl, who was considered the founding father of the Zionist movement, wrote a letter in, I believe it was 1904, to Cecil Rhodes, the architect of British imperialism in Africa. And he said, well, this isn't about Africa. It's about the Middle East or something like that. But he said, why do I write to you? Because it is something colonial. In other words, their idea was to have a colony in some part of the world, and they eventually settled on Palestine. But having settled on it, they then popularized a slogan, and the slogan was, a land without a people for a people without a land. Ignoring the fact that Palestine was occupied by people, uh, almost all the arable land was under cultivation. And so you have this contradiction. There's another contradiction, and that is that while it was a European colonial project, it had no army or navy, and nowhere else in the world, and certainly not in the Middle East as well or in Palestine, could the colonizers hope that they could just show up and say, well, we're taking your land. No, they had to have force. It was, colonialism was always carried out by violence and required an army and it required a navy in the colonizing period. And so here you had this very strange movement, in a way, a very strange colonial movement that's not coming from one of the great powers, but is therefore needing to find a sponsor, needing to find a country that would support the Zionist project in the creation of what they first called a home, but really meant to be a state, a new state. So they were seeking the support of one of the big states, big countries in Europe. And all of those were empires. 
They were the French Empire, the British Empire, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire. They all called themselves empires. So the colonizers, the Zionists who were carrying out this project, had to appeal to them on some basis other than altruism. You know, these are empires. They're in the business of oppressing people. You can't just go to them and say, you know, we're suffering, we're oppressed people, can you support us? They had to offer some kind of a quid pro quo. And what they did offer, and Chaim Weizmann, who succeeded Herzl, as the leader of the Zionist project after Herzl's death in the early 1900s, wrote a letter in 1914, on the very eve of World War I, where he said, if you will support us, he says this to the British government, if you will support us, we will be the protectors of the Suez Canal for you. And Palestine's quite close, not real close, but fairly close to uh, the Suez Canal, which was the lifeline of the British Empire. And we'll also, and this illustrated the racist character of it, of the colonial project, will bring back civilization to it. So this is, this is what the organizers of the Zionist project, how they sought to go about getting support for their colonial project. And eventually the British would agree to this, and they would agree to it November 2nd, 1917, and the date is kind of important, November 2nd, 1917, with the issuance of the Balfour Declaration by the Foreign Minister Arthur Balfour of England saying that Britain would support the establishment of a home for Jewish people in Palestine. And what's very interesting about that, among other things, is that Britain did not control Palestine at that time. It was the middle of World War I. Millions had died. The British were out to take over the Middle East, but they hadn't yet done so. So they were promising something, as one Palestinian historian said, they were promising something that they had no right to promise, and they had no right to be giving away something that they didn't own, which was Palestine. So the Balfour Declaration, announced by the British foreign minister in 1917, happens at a time when World War I is still going on. So you have on one side Britain, France, the United States is about to enter the war, and Tsarist Russia. So that's one side of the war. And then on the other side is Germany, the Ottoman Empire in particular, meaning what became eventually Turkey, but it was the Ottoman Empire and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So that's the alignment. Britain, France, the United States versus Germany, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire on the other side. The Ottomans are controlling the Middle East. They control what we later learned to be Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. And during that time, the, the British say, okay, we're going to have our own colonial takeover of this resource-rich region now known as the Middle East. People in the area call it West Asia. At that time, Richard, and you cover this in your book, there was an agreement between Britain, France, and Tsarist Russia that happened before the end of World War I, before the collapse of its enemies, and it's called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was a secret agreement by the countries that were fighting against the Ottoman Empire to redivide the Middle East, to create colonies in the Middle East, and it was a secret agreement. Let's talk about Sykes-Picot, because in a way, for people who don't know, and I would say that's most people in the United States, don't know this history, 
Sykes-Picot is a pivotal moment in terms of the reconfiguration of the Middle East and eventually has a profound, profound impact both on the Zionist project, but also the fate of the Palestinian people. Yeah, the Sykes-Picot agreement was made in secret in 1915. At the same time, people may know about Lawrence of Arabia, who, Lawrence of Arabia, there's been movies, been glamorized in the U.S., but he was a representative of the British Empire who went to the Arab people, and particularly to the monarchies, the Hashemite monarchy that governed Saudi Arabia or part of it at that time, and said, if you fight on our side against the Ottoman Empire in the war, we will support an independent Arab state after the war is over with, and you can be the king of that independent state. At the same time, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, wasn't a formal treaty, but that agreement was being discussed, and the plan for how the Ottoman Empire would be cut up and divided after the war, presumably when the British and French and Russia was in on it, and they were part of the alliance too, and also Italy and Greece were all going to get pieces of the Ottoman Empire. And so this was the ultimate deception. The Sykes-Picot Agreement became public, interestingly, after the Russian Revolution of November of 1917. So on November 2nd, 1917, was the Balfour Declaration, and that became known publicly. It was a public declaration. And a few weeks later, the new Russian Revolutionary Government published the Sykes-Picot Agreement for the world to see. And this is how, in the, in the Middle East, people came to know that the Sykes-Picot really represented, together with the Balfour Declaration, the complete sellout of their interest in the interest of imperialism and in the interest of Zionism. So this is where the French got Syria and Lebanon in this agreement. They were going to get that, and they were going to get the northern part of Iraq, but the British betrayed their own allies, shockingly. And the British got Iraq and Palestine, what's today Palestine, Jordan, cemented their control over Egypt. They also controlled Iran at the time. And Turkey, modern-day Turkey, was being divided up with pieces of it supposedly given to Russia and to Greece and to Italy. So that didn't really happen, the latter part of it. Russia published, as I said, the details of the Sykes-Picot, and the Russian revolutionary government said, we want no part of this, we reject any annexations, and what was negotiated by the Tsarist government, we reject. So that's the government of Lenin. Lenin comes in announces that the new Russia, socialist Russia, Soviet Russia, is going to fight against all of the imperialists. It sides with the oppressed people of the world. And it says, we won't be part of any government or any international alliance with these other robber baron imperialists who made secret deals behind the backs of everyone about how to divide, conquer, dominate different parts of the world. So Sykes-Picot is revealed. We wouldn't even know about the Sykes-Picot Treaty, really, if the Tsar had not been overthrown, but if the Lenin government, the socialist government, the Bolshevik government had not come to power because they were the ones who revealed it. And so Russia gives up its claim on Constantinople, for instance, and of course, Tsarist Russia had always had long desired to return Constantinople to Orthodox Christianity. But they give up that, but 
here you have France holding on to Syria and Lebanon, the British controlling Iraq, Palestine, Jordan, and Egypt. So it's colonial plunder. So you have the colonizing powers in the world, the empires fighting each other for who's going to conquer what colonies from the other side. That's what World War I was really about. And so Palestine becomes a British possession, and the Balfour Declaration is issued around the same time, a year or a year and a half after the secret treaty. But when Britain kind of knows it's going to win the war, and they say, well, we're going to divide Palestine, and half of it will go to European Jewry. And Richard, one of the things that I think is important, and one of the things you talk about in your book, is that the British imperialists who did this, who wanted to have a Jewish homeland in Palestine as it conquered Palestine, far from caring about Jews, far from having any altruism about the cause of protecting Jews from European anti-Semitism, these people were vile anti-Semites, including Winston Churchill. You have a section in your book about that. Let's talk about that part of it and how the imperialist, especially the British imperialist calculation, thought about Jews and Arabs in Palestine and how it was, in one way, not only an example of abject manipulation, but fiercely anti-communist as well. Yeah, and you have Churchill, who was managing at the time the counter-revolution, the attempted counter-revolution against the Russian Revolution. And he writes a letter to a major newspaper in 1920. It's an article, actually. And the article is entitled, Good Jews and Bad Jews. And in the course of the article, he explains, and what his viewpoint is, is that all down through history, from the time of the Spartacus slave revolt against Rome, the French Revolution, and now the Russian Revolution, and he names a couple other. These are all, in his view, very terrible things, and they're all led by Jewish people. So They're the bad Jews. They're the bad Jews. And the alternative for young Jewish people, according to Churchill, is to set them on the course of Zionism, and that Zionism will be this conservatizing, reactionary, nationalist, movement that'll create a state for them, and that this will be the alternative that can be offered to young Jewish people who, from Churchill's view, were playing such a big role in revolutionary movements, not only in Russia, but all across Europe and perhaps in the United States as well. So this is Churchill, the real Churchill, who was a vile racist, a vile imperialist. So at the same time as he's managing the counter-revolution against the, against the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. and He's also thinking about how do we prevent more revolutionaries coming forth from the Jewish community. Yeah, I want to read a little bit to our audience, Richard, from your book. Again, the book is Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire, and it's about the article that you just mentioned. I'm going to read it. It takes a minute or two, but I really think it helps the audience understand exactly what you're saying. Here it is. The British government was at that time the chief organizer of the international imperialist campaign to overthrow the Russian Revolution. How this related to their heightened interest in Zionism was explained in an extreme anti-Semitic, anti-revolutionary, and pro-Zionist feature article written by Churchill 
for London's Illustrated Sunday Herald in 1920. Following a section simply headlined, Good Jews and Bad Jews, from the days of Spartacus to those of Karl Marx and down to Trotsky in Russia, Bela Kuhn in Hungary, Rosa Luxemburg in Germany, and Emma Goldman in the United States, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization has been steadily growing. And then he talks about how it's been growing and how terrible it is. He continues in a section in the article entitled, Terrorist Jews. There is no need to exaggerate, Churchill writes, the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the actual bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and, for most part, atheistical Jews. It is certainly a very great one. It probably outweighs all others. With the notable exception of Lenin, the majority of leading figures are Jews. Moreover, the principled inspiration and driving power comes from Jewish leaders. And then he goes on and on to rant and rave against Trotsky, who was Jewish, along with Kamenov and Zinoviev, who are also Jewish and leaders of the Bolshevik Party, and how they are in turn at war against the narrow nationalism of Zionism, because the the communists and, of course, socialist and communist Jews in Europe were making the argument that the emancipation of Jewish people, like the emancipation of all oppressed, persecuted national minorities or national minority peoples or minority religions, arrested not in narrow nationalism or going to somebody else's land and dominating it, but through socialist revolution to create a society of equals. But when you read the words of Churchill, the great British statesman, and we're, we're all taught in the United States to revere Churchill, this guy, I mean, his anti-Semitism rivals that of the Nazis. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, uh, you know, at the same time that this was going on, something else was happening as an aftermath of the Sykes-Picot Treaty. And that was the people in the region, and particularly in Syria, and southern Syria is another name, also was another name at the time for Palestine, and Lebanon got together and created a new state in defiance of the uh, Sykes-Picot and what the British were doing, because the British were really the ones managing the new colonial enterprise in, in the Middle East. And they created in 1919 a Syrian constitutional monarchy with an assembly with representatives from Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, an independent country. And that country had its assembly in Damascus, but it had the branches and all the, in, what are these different countries today. And then the British allowed the French in the next year in 1920, overthrew it, killed many people, and subjected Syria so that Syria as well as Lebanon now became French colonies. We have to see that this really changed the way development happened altogether in the Middle East. And this was, again, at a time when the British, together with the French, were splitting up the, middle, or the modern Middle East between them. So you have the Arab people who like people in Africa, people in Asia, were seeking national independence, national sovereignty, freedom from colonial domination. I mean, there is no system that's less democratic than colonialism because you have a foreign power that's extracting resources from your lands 
exploiting the labor of your people for their profit, and you don't have any say-so. You're a slave. Colonization is a form of slavery, but for an entire nation, an entire people. And the people in the Middle East were rising up against it. I mean, you could see even then, Richard, that this long you know, trajectory of fighting for emancipation was deep inside of society. The British took control of Baghdad in Iraq. Again, it had been under Ottoman domination because of the Sykes-Picot Treaty. But in 1920, the people in Iraq rose up. I mean, it was such a historic rebellion. And you can see why the British, and I want you to talk about it because I know you've written about the 1920 revolution or rebellion in Iraq, why, in terms of the calculations of foreign imperialism or foreign colonizers, they would want proxy forces because it's pretty hard to defeat an entire people like the Iraqi people or the Palestinian people or the Jordanian masses when your armies have to come from thousands of miles away. Let's just talk about Iraq for a second. Yeah, and Iraq, the Great Arab Revolt, as it was called in 1920, was really a powerful reaction to the new colonialism. And, you know, one thing I have to say is that in the Ottoman Empire, which was an empire, of course, but it had an, an assembly, and these different elements of what became new states of Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Palestine, they had representatives that were in that assembly. Now, under colonialism, that was all over. So, it, actually, the idea that this was some kind of a modernizing enterprise that colonialism was producing is completely false. And the people there had no intention of accepting it. Year after year after year, after 1920, the revolt was crushed. At least 10,000 Iraqis were killed. Churchill wrote another letter, uh, a letter at that time to one of the British newspapers saying, I don't see why we're upset about using poison gas on the ends. And he was using the N word. Uh, for people who were the subject of this attack and, and that was going on in Iraq. So that, that's Churchill also. Is, and so, you know, the 10,000, at least Iraqis, at least 10,000 Iraqis were killed. 2,000 British soldiers were killed. A lot of the British soldiers were actually Indian. So the British, who were the masters of empire, and when you consider that they, they said the sun never sets on the British empire, how does that small island control so much of the world well, they used their earlier colonies against their later colonies. So they brought the British, uh, a lot of the British troops who fought in Iraq at that time in 1920, as I said, came from India, uh, but with, of course, with British commanders. And then it was year after year after year that the uprisings happened in Iraq. There was great resistance. And one thing I have to say about 1920 and the distortions in life that followed from colonialism in 1920, the imams of the Shia and Sunni mosques went into each other's mosques and preached national unity. It was really, that was the beginning of Iraqi national unity. And so later, when the British ruled, and then later after the U.S. intervention, there was all kinds of efforts that were made in, in order to control Iraq, to divide the population on a religious basis, on a ethnic and, and national basis of different groups within the country. But the British invasion that took place and occupation of Iraq is remembered by all the people of the country. And it was part of a, a generalized revolt that happened in many other parts of the Middle East 
against the new colonialism at that time. So the unification of people into a people or a nation is part and part of the struggle against colonialism. So overcoming religious differences or ethnic differences or geographical differences, uniting the people against the foreign occupier, it's a point of unity. And the foreign occupier always, and the British were experts at it, at divide and conquer, trying to divide and conquer. I mean, look what they did to India. You mentioned Indian troops fighting in Iraq so that British young men would not have to go and do all the dying themselves. They could send Indian subjects. You know, the division of India after World War II between Pakistan and India, that was the work of British colonialism, very, very intentional. And on the other side, you have the colonized people fighting in a way against all odds to create national unity. And, you know, you see this even in contemporary times, and eventually as we continue our discussion, Richard, we're going to sort of walk through the history of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. empire. This is the first of multiple discussions. But we're going to talk about this yearning, this aspiration for unity as becoming such an important feature of the struggle. And, And by the way, just before I end that point, when Joe Biden was a U.S. Senator Joe Biden, and after the Iraqi resistance was basically destroying the U.S. occupation following the shock and awe invasion of Iraq in 2003, Biden was the architect of a plan to break Iraq apart, have a Sunni Iraq, a Shiite Iraq, and a Kurdish Iraq, because he said Iraqis can never live together. They hate each other so much. Well, up until that time, up until the U.S. invasion in 2003, Shiite and Sunni and Kurds lived together, not without tension, but the idea of separating the country. I mean, that was the Biden plan was actually to create three mini Iraqi states, like what Biden and Clinton did with Yugoslavia or what they earlier did with the Soviet Union. I mean, really something, this sort of ongoing struggles for unity from the oppressed, from the colonized and the efforts to divide and conquer from the colonizers. Yeah, you know, the first constitution of the post-colonial Iraq, the real post-colonial, which was in the revolution that happened in 1958, and was really a high watermark for the whole Arab national movement throughout the region of West Africa and North Africa. Their constitution, the first one, was a constitution of two peoples, the Arab and Kurdish peoples. So there was an intention right there. And Kurdistan, the Kurdish region, had been the source of a lot of revolutionary activity, a lot of communist activity, uh, rebellion against, uh, against the British and against the British lackey government in Baghdad. So those were the, uh, the reality of the time, is that the progressive forces, and this is true throughout the, the Middle East, North Africa, it's throughout much of the colonial world, that the elements that are the progressive forces in society and the unifying forces in society are seen as the enemy by the British, also by the U.S., by the French, by all the colonizing countries. And today, the neo-colonies of the United States, uh, which may not be formal colonies anymore, the same kind of thing goes on. And the British, for instance, were typically in the colonies that they took over, the areas that they took over, would promote minority groups in, to be the military and to be the leadership because they felt that or knew that those 
military leaders, those governments that were minority-led would be seen as agents of the British and hated by other parts of the population or resented by other parts of the population, and that, that would help the colonizers. So that's the reality of colonialism and the thinking of colonialism, as you were uh, saying a little while ago, Brian. And interesting, we're going to come to the finish line in this, and again, this is the first of a multiple series on this topic and about elements in your book, the sort of the missing history. Sykes-Pico Treaty also divided the Kurds because the Kurds lived in a contiguous territory. They spoke their own language. They were part of the Arab world, so to speak, but they were a distinct people. And the way Sykes-Pico divided the Middle East in secret between the colonizers was to have Kurds who would be in Turkey. A lot of Kurds live in Turkey. A big part of the Kurdish population lives in Syria. Another part lives in northern Iraq. Another part lives in Iran. So there was a decision by Western colonialism that the Kurds would never have their own state, even though they certainly were a people. They could have easily had a state within a contiguous territory. They were not a small population. But again, the way the Kurdish question has been used is one of abject manipulation by colonizers. So here you have the United States right now illegally occupying Syria and saying that it's there in spite of the fact that the Syrian government, the sovereign government, the government that's recognized by the United Nations says, we don't want you here, you're not invited, and as a consequence, your occupation of our country is illegal, the U.S. says, well, we're there to help the Kurds. And they actually have a military alliance with some part of the Kurdish movement, again, divide and conquer. Dick, before we end this, I want to just finish one piece of the history, because in the next discussion we have with you, we're going to talk about the 1950s and 60s, especially the 1967 war. But I want to stay in the, the roots of colonialism in Palestine, the roots, the colonial roots of Zionism. There was also a revolution in Palestine. It was a revolution that unified the people against British colonialism and against the obvious Zionist designs on Palestinian lands. That was the revolution of 1936 to 1939. Every Palestinian knows about this, but Americans don't know about it. So I figured perhaps it's a good way to end our first part of the series by talking about what that Palestinian revolution looked like. Well, yes, from the time of the British takeover of Palestine and the opening up of Palestine to Zionist settlement, the numbers grew quite quickly. It would maybe at the time of Balfour Declaration, we're talking about 90% of the population still are 85 to 90% is Palestinian. By the mid-1930s, it would be 30%, 25 or 30% of the population were settlers. And they were buying land, they were evicting peasants, there were a lot of clashes that were taking place. And then in 1936, when things really got to a certain point, there was a general strike And it was the longest general strike, it said, in world history, a six-month general strike by the Palestinian Arab population in Palestine. And that grew into an armed conflict, and it grew into a military uprising, an armed uprising, and that armed uprising lasted until 1939. It had a weakness 
And the weakness was it didn't have a party. It didn't have a, a widely recognized revolutionary party. There were many different organizations uh, or tendencies and so forth, but it didn't have a unifying party. But nevertheless, against the British Empire and against the Zionists who uh, they were fighting, this went on for two and a half years after the general strike. It ended with the defeat for the Palestinians, which, of course, we, we know, but in the aftermath of it, the Zionist military forces that had been formed were much stronger, much better armed, and laws were enacted, emergency military regulations by the British colonizers that made it a crime for Palestinians to have a knife or uh, you could be executed if you owned a gun. And this would set the stage, this great heroic uprising would set the stage, unfortunately, for the Palestinians to emerge from World War II, six years later in 1945, in a very weakened state. They didn't recover to any great extent during the period of the war. And so they were in a weakened state. And that was a large part of the reason why the Zionists would be able to win the war that took place after the illegal UN partition of Palestine on November 29th, 1947. All right, we're going to leave it right there. In the next discussion, Richard, we're going to talk about the period. We're not going to cover the Nakba in 1948 because I think people know about that, but the period of Israel and Israel's role in the Middle East and its relationship first with British and French imperialism and then U.S. imperialism. So we're going to cover the period from 1956 when Israel, along with Britain and France, invaded Egypt to the 1967 war, and all the way up to the Camp David Accords in 1978 between Israel and Egypt, which removed Egypt from the confrontation with Israel, the, removing the largest Arab army. That was the agreement that was shepherded by President Jimmy Carter with Menachem Begin from the Likud party, the right-wing party in Israel, along with Sadat, who was the head of state in Egypt. So we'll talk about that in the next episode. Richard, people can buy your book, Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire, by going to the publisher, 1804books.com. People can order. It will be shipped to your home. I know that there are study groups taking place with the book all over the country. People need to know this history. Without the history, if you think history started on October 7th with the Hamas incursion into historic Palestine, what's called Israel today, if you think that's when history starts, you don't know what's going on. You have to know the actual history. So people should go and buy this book, Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Go to 1804books.com. Richard Becker has been our guest. This is The Socialist Program. Richard Becker, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.